Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 141 of the Quickie Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and I got me a London bloke on the show today. But first, before I introduce him, if you haven't had a chance to listen to episode 140 yet, that was my first ever bonus episode on the weekend where it's just me on the podcast. Yep, it's as scary as it sounds. So what's that bonus episode all about? Well, I go over the most common types of printing and the kind of projects you would possibly use them for or what they're most commonly used for. I also get into how to find a printer in your area. I also get into how to request a quote from a printer and what that necessary information is that you need to include on that quote request and basically just how you can be your printer and the printing estimator's best bud. So check it out, episode 140. So today, today's guest is Ben Muttershead from Ben Designs in London, England. He's a brand strategist and designer. He's done work for Nike, for Vice. The guy knows his stuff and does some great work. During this episode, we get into his childhood growing up in the Lake District in England and how he was big into sports. And that was actually his original sort of career direction that he wanted to go in was some sort of professional sport. Now, there was two fluke factors that played into him sort of doubling down and pursuing art and design. I'll let him explain those in the episode. He also tells us the moment that really opened his eyes to the depth that design and branding can reach. We talk about the internship that he had where he worked on a large Nike project. We talk about the tough breakdown moment he had early on in his career. Uh, He also tells us about the protest by design project that he's really proud to have been a part of and why. And he tells us about a project that him and some friends are working on uh, where they put together weekly design briefs. And uh, he tells us what that's all about and why he started that project. This one is what I would call a longy podcast or a quickie-ish podcast. We got talking, I loved his stories, and I didn't want to stop. So we get into the own of the 40-minute realm in this one, but uh, you're nice and you'll forgive me, I know that. So ladies and gentlemen, let's get into this fantastic interview with my guest today, Ben Muttershead. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field, and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a Quickie? Ben, welcome to the Quickie Podcast. How you doing, man? I'm really good, thank you, mate. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for being here. And uh, I first have to ask, are you ready for a quickie? Oh, I'm always ready for a quickie. It's just what my life is about. <laughs> Attaboy. Well, let's get started. Briefly tell the listeners about yourself. So yeah, hi, I'm Ben Mottersed. I go under the pseudonym of Ben Designs. Um, I'm a strategist and designer working in cycling within the um, heart of London. 
Uh, within my career, I spent six years working within various design agencies, including branding, motion and animation and digital um, before I actually burnt out um, and developed some form of mental health problems and ended up quitting my job to go freelance. Um, since doing so, I've worked with an array of clients, most recently a global creative networking and events company called Glug, um, who I do a few days a week for and other days are spent working with my own clients, going into studios or consulting. I've been made redundant from two jobs. I've quit one. I've drank enough coffee to kill Charlie Sheen. I've worked <laughs> enough hours to nearly kill myself. And I failed an enormous amount of times in my life, but I've loved every moment of it. Beautiful. That is like probably number one elevator pitch I've heard on the Quickie podcast so far. Oh yeah, I'm very um, I'm I'm very good at like taking it to memory at this point and cycling <laughs> it. That's the spiel. That's awesome. Okay, um, so one of the things I pulled from that is enough coffee to kill Charlie Sheen. I yeah. don't know. I don't know, man. Yeah, I did. I did think that when I've got that in there, it's just to me it was a lot of coffee. But then Charlie looks like he could handle a lot more than coffee. So maybe it's not <laughs> actually. Maybe does. I need to change that to something else. <laughs> like maybe enough coffee to like kill Stanley or someone who's like or like you know Christopher Lee or someone who's maybe you know maybe doesn't have the um, resting heart rate of like a, a, a walrus. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so there's a lot in there that I want to unpack. And I think going through this, uh, the questions here is just going to, going to rip that open and unpack that for me. Um, so I want to start with your childhood. I want to dive way back and I want to hear what that was like. Do you feel you had a creative childhood that sort of led you in this career path? Yeah, yeah. I, I, well, a bit about my childhood is I, I grew up in a place called the Lake District in the northwest of England. Mm-hmm. Um, for anyone who's not aware of the Lake District, go and Google it. It's one of the most um, scenic places in the world. Um, so, and because I lived there, my childhood was filled with stuff like mountain biking, water skiing, rock climbing. It was a very outdoorsy childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, neither of my parents were what you would, would have what you'd call a creative job. Uh, but my dad was an English teacher and therefore he did write a lot um, and was creative in that aspect. And they both loved culture. So I was taken to dozens of art galleries and museums growing up, which I definitely feel educated me a lot in regards to both past and present culture. Mm-hmm. Um, my interest with art was at an early age. Um, I've actually got ADHD and um, I found that academic fact learning subjects didn't really agree with me Mm -hmm. i found it incredibly difficult to focus on those but i always excelled at creative ones Uh, media studies film art um my parents noticed this and invested a lot of money and time into buying me things such as lego and warhammer and getting me involved in that kind of really hands-on sort of uh, those sort of hands-on hobbies yep um i was always creative but i never really considered it as a potential career you know like I never really saw myself as an artist or a designer for a young age it wasn't really until I was about 18 19 that I actually started to look at that as a potential career outlet um up until that point actually I'd wanted to work in sport um as I'd mentioned my entire childhood had actually been around sport a lot especially extreme sports and um I was always a very energetic person but luckily or unluckily I had a really awful um sport department at the school my school mm-hmm. And that kind of pushed me to then drop out of that and um, focus on art and design as a subject. Mm-hmm. Um, even at that point, though, I didn't fully commit to design until I was about 19 or 20. So if you actually look at the like the span of my childhood, um, although I was a very creative person, and I was probably creative more in a hands-on way of just being naturally pulled to things that use my imagination, mm-hmm. the actual idea of 
idea of going into design as a career never really took hold until I was about 19. So I was very late to the party in some cases. So what sport were you really looking at getting into? You had said, you know, extreme sports. Like, where, where are, you, are you putting on a wingsuit and jumping out of helicopters? What no, you- no, no. So um, <laughs> I, I actually had a few sports. So one of my main sports was mountain biking. Okay. Um, growing up in the Lake District, it was right on my doorstep. And I absolutely loved mountain biking. It was um, just... Extreme sports to me are like almost ultimate creativity. Mm-hmm. So I skated a lot as well, but you view the world in a, such a different light and everything becomes almost a playground. So instead of seeing, you know, a tree, I'd see something that I could try and ride my bike up. Mm-hmm. And or you, I, that, that, I think it was that kind of actually creative, mixing creativity with sport, I think was a defining point for me in terms of using that as a release to actually engage in the world in a creative way. Um, other than that though I played my main other sports were basketball and rugby I played basketball for about a decade um, professional not professionally sorry but like you know competitively and coaching mm-hmm. um, and rugby I played competitively but not at like a, a high level but again the things I was interested in basketball was sort of like street ball and like using the sport cre- creatively so while I never had a direct um, funnel towards the arts creativity always played a huge part in the way I interacted with things in the world uh-huh. which um which is just great like I can't I, I was never going to be a professional athlete but I definitely it helped me burn the energy I think my parents supported it because of my ADHD I wasn't a terror <laughs> and I wasn't yeah. like being, I wasn't burning them out so much but I also had really supportive parents and I mean they they took first took us skiing when they were in their mid 40s and that was when they first went skiing so they started trying to learn to ski when they were in their mid 40s and um they've always been this kind of these people that are very just go-getters and they just try things and they didn't want the idea of kids to hold them but back from experiencing life and therefore they kind of took us with them so yeah I mean it it, I I think it's hard it's hard as well because for me and you might find this living out in Vancouver but I sort of took for granted at the time um, that idea of living in one of those places because I went 100%. to university and then I was speaking to a lot of people my own age and they were like, oh no, I just kind of went home after school and played Xbox all night. And I went straight out, got my skates and went out skating. Or I went and got my mountain bike and went out mountain biking. Or I went and camped in the hills or did stuff like that. And I, I think at the time I didn't, looking back, I probably could have appreciated it more and actually the way that I was allowed to use creativity in a completely different way from what I do now. Mm-hmm. So in the design sense, through all of that, you mentioned that mm. you know sport was the original direction, but it wasn't until about 18 or 19 where creativity and design, that's where you doubled down on that. Yeah. What was that moment? Why did you just double down on it? Did you see something that sparked it? Did a teacher say something to you? What sparked it and made that happen right then? Well, I think like I, I sort of mentioned, it was almost actually, because um, I wasn't always interested in design, but actually a really bizarre thing that happened is I did. Um, so in England, we have, um, I'm not sure what the equivalent would be in uh, Canada, but we have GCSEs, which is like the, the, the years between um, 14 and 16. Okay. Um, you're that age. And they're basically examinations. And I did art at GCSE. And it was, I had a horrible department and I actually ended up dropping art and I had no intention of carrying on with it at all. And I actually wanted to pursue own religious studies at um, a higher, a higher level. Mm-hmm. And I went to this, I went to a new school and it turned out that course had been dropped from the syllabus due to a lack of interest. And I remember standing in the main hall where you sign up to your courses 
and being told that and then thinking, oh, God, what do I do now? And I turned around 180 and the art table was right in front of me. And I just went and signed up there and then. So that was one kind of fluke occurrence where mm-hmm. if that hadn't happened, I probably would have never become a designer. And the other one was just a failure of my um, sport department. And like I said, I always had an interest in art. I always really enjoyed it. I was actually pretty good at it. Um, but sport was where I thought I should be. And then because of a massive failing on their part to actually kind of engage with me, engage me in the course, I then dropped, I ended up dropping out of that course and focusing on art. And because art, I've considered my next best subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just meant that I freed up, I guess, mental space to actually um, time to focus purely on that. Um, and then it was just a case of, I'm always the sort of person that when I commit to something, I kind of really commit to it. Uh And because I then kind of said to myself, right, this is what you're good at. This is what you enjoy. Let's just put everything behind it. Let's actually see where this road goes. Uh And I don't think I entered it with any kind of expectation of maybe getting a career as a designer. At the time, I actually didn't even know what design really was. Like when my course was an art course, it was fine art. It was painting. It was drawing, photography. Um, I didn't have any idea at that time at the age of 18 about branding or animation or graphic design as mm-hmm. a, like an actual structure or, or sorry, as a medium. So it was just kind of a, like arriving to the party late and then having to just learn when I was in that moment. Yeah. But one thing you do, I did do is I went and did a foundation year uh, before I went to university. And a foundation year is basically just, I, I'm, it's just a year where you go and explore the various at mine, it was an art and design foundation. So you did a, um, two weeks on a design special course, and then you went and did two weeks on um, a fine art one, two weeks on a photography one, two weeks on a fashion course. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you then specialized. So I didn't actually specialize and choose design until the Christmas of 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when I kind of decided design was what I wanted to do. Um, at that point, I'd been stuck between going into fine art because I really liked making, as I said, going back to like me as a kid and being interested in craft and hands-on stuff. Yeah. I really enjoyed the making side of it. So fine art was a really serious contender for me. But then I had to look at it commercially and look at it actually as a viable career move. And I spoke to people and realized, actually, unless you're a successful fine artist, there's no money. Whilst you can actually do design and make money from it and actually make a career from it quite easily. Mm-hmm. Um I think this is what it's, it's sort of like what Aaron Draplin always said, I don't, like where he goes, like I got into design to make money, and I love design, but fundamentally, design to me was a way to build a career. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense for sure, of, and yeah. it's not uncommon from what I've heard um, from a number of guests. Actually, you know, unless you are, you know, in that top tier in fine art, um, it's you know, it's not that you can't make a living, but it's a lot tougher. But you get into graphic design or branding, and you know you got a, a lot more avenues where you can sort of flex that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think in terms of um, England, the creative industries are actually one of the highest, uh, most profitable sectors in the whole of England. We, I think, the creative industries contributes about hundred billion pounds um, a year to the British economy. Wow! And um, yeah, it's a massive amount. And I think when you look at the actual various areas of the creative industries, the design sector. As in terms of commercial design is one of the biggest contributors mm-hmm. contributors so i just saw those kind of numbers being thrown out and i was like well i could i could struggle to be i could become a fine artist and then struggle to make paintings and sell paintings and all that kind of stuff 
Or I could go into this other area, which still allows a creative release, but it also helps me to understand a more commercially minded part of the world mm-hmm. um, and how to engage with that. So and I wasn't really having these thoughts necessarily. I think these are probably unconscious thoughts at that point because I was only 19. I wasn't a business. I wasn't like studying business at that point. Um, but yeah, like it, me getting into design was a, basically a failing of my sport department. And um, the fact a course I really wanted to do wasn't running. Crazy. And that was that was the, that was the reason I got into it. So Ben, then what stands out um, to you in your career as the most influential design of your life so far? Um, something you've seen and has just really stuck with you? Yeah, so I actually had to think about this, but then um, we had a company called Moving Brands come to do a talk with us when I was in my first year of uni. Okay, uh, really big, really good design um, design company. They rebranded people like DeviantArt and um, stuff like that, so they're they're really prolific. But they um, presented a branding case study for um, a company called Swisscom. Okay. And um, it was the first time I'd really witnessed the sheer depth you could explore within design and branding and how you could incorporate areas such as video and animation, kinetic logotypes, um, photography, art direction, all into a single um, project. Mm-hmm. Um and the talk was with a couple of their staff members, and I instantly arranged to visit their studio um, during the summer. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you'd class it as influential or inspiring as a mm-hmm. um, as a case study, but it really made me buckle down and begin to recognise the significance of design on the world and the ability to impact businesses and consumers. And I think that was the turning point for me. It, it stopped design being a purely aesthetic mm-hmm. tool. And changed it very much into a communication tool um, that sits within like the modern day industries. It sort of opened your eyes to the depth and possibilities that design and branding have. Well, that's that's exactly it. And at the time, I was I think I was nineteen, still nineteen, mm-hmm. maybe maybe just before I turned twenty, and um, I maybe was not twenty, but that was yeah, that was the first time I'd really gone. Oh my god, I could be doing stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And it actually made me realize that I didn't, I still I didn't really understand what design was at that point. I was the first year of university. I hadn't, I'd sort of just fallen into design or it felt like I had done. Yeah. Um, and it was the first real like presentation I'd had where I'd gone, I could get a career doing this. That's like awesome. Like I need to like, that's what I need to be doing with my life. Um, so that was a really, I guess, pivotal point for me and made me start to actually recognize the power of design. Definitely. So I'm interested to hear then, who are some of the designers and brands that you look up to now and closely follow now? And what is it about them that you like? Yeah, so um, I thought about this and it's I, I guess you probably get a lot of speakers who go, oh, there isn't just one, it can't just be one. And I, I think it's probably the same with me, but I kind of, for me, I kind of consume from so many sources, brands, mm-hmm. and I speak to so many people, it all kind of blends into one eventually. But I definitely love brands which have a local global feel to them and place community at the heart of their business. So I'm a really keen cyclist. I've cycled my entire life, whether it's Mm -hmm. mountain biking or road cycling. And Rafa, the cycle brand, would be a good example for me. Um, I've always admired and loved their approach, um, the approach Rafa takes to not only its design and product, but also its customers. Mm -hmm. So from simple messages when you uh, purchase a product to like swing tickets, to the, the Rafa Road Club, which they have, which is in their in their internal cycling club, uh, which offers like unique offerings um, such as trips and merchandise to their clubhouses, where you can like shop 
um, their collections and also grab a coffee and socialize. Mm-hmm. Um, within my own career and with, especially within strategy, I predominantly look at community centricity and the ability to not just be product facing and speak at a customer, but also to allow that customer and audience to speak to you and each other. Um, it's an incredibly important thing for brands to be doing and for companies to be doing. And I, when I see it being done successfully and when I see brands actually engaging in, with their customers in a really authentic way and allowing those and empowering those customers to speak to one another, um, that's just something I love. And it actually makes me want to engage with those brands. So I guess my favorite brands are the ones that make me want to engage with them. Very cool. Yeah. So it's and it's, it's 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 really great to see that it's actually becoming. More, I think companies are starting to realise that they can no longer be product facing. They can't just be going, "Here's a product, you get on with it," mm-hmm. and you have to. And they the, engage. The actual conversation is very one sided. A lot of brands now are having to create environments where it allows customers to speak to them and actually offer better sort of like better um, in, like, interactions with their consumers. Yeah, and, um, it's more of an engagement situation than a than a sales situation, right? Yeah, and that's just it. I think there's, it's been too long where it's been so sales orientated, and I mean, you have to like think about you have to obviously get your overheads and you have to sell your product. But I think brands need to reevaluate what their USP is mm-hmm. and actually look at what what their customers want and actually talk to them more as unique individuals and not just as commodities that can be like advertised to and sold to because people are savvy these days customers are getting more and more savvy demographics are getting savvier they're aware when they're being sold to and when they're being conversed with and it's why brands are starting to recognize this and actually trying to converse with their customer not just like sell them like pointless product Mm -hmm. um so yeah i think for me it's, it's that local global feel like companies that feel like their localized communities, but actually operate on a much larger scale. Definitely. Um, so Ben, the next question I have for you is about print. And I'm curious to mm. hear how you have utilized print in your design career. And if you have any stories around printer packaging from projects that you enjoyed being a part of. So print's interesting because I've, I mean, there's always this discussion these days, about is print dying out, blah, blah, blah. And it's definitely not. Um, I think the editorial industry is kind of suffering a bit, but from my own perspective, um, print and packaging was a big part of my professional life when I was younger, mm-hmm. um, particularly as a junior, as I worked within a branding agency within the hospitality sector. So if you think about menu design, POS, wayfaring, hoarding, all those things that you actually have to get properly print ready artwork for and thrown out onto buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, however, once I'd left that, oh, sorry, once I'd been made redundant from that role, I moved into motion design and digital age, uh, digital agencies. And obviously I guess print was formerly used more there as a kind of sometimes a marketing technique, but it mm-hmm. wasn't actually massively as used. Um, the first really interesting project I got to work on in the professional in the creative industries was I was um, an intern at a company called 1.0. They were doing the, um, the Nike world basketball festival cool. and they were doing all the branding, all the, um, artworking, basically curating the entire festival for Nike. And, um, that I was an intern, but I was quite fortunate in the sense that one of their, their main freelancer became, became ill. 
and um, I was the only other one in the, at the time in the studio that could use the Adobe software. So they kind of threw me in the deep end, and I got really <laughs> heavily involved in this project. And cry, it was honestly a sink or swim moment because I was working about twelve hour days um, as an intern. I wasn't; it was an unpaid internship. I mean, it covered a bit of travel, but at the time, unpaid internships were still the only really way to get into the industry. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just like utterly exhausting but it was so rewarding to be part of a project that required that much printed output it taught me about artwork and it taught me about curation and actually branding and it was um that was for me because i was so young still the fact that i was given the trust to actually be part of that project in a way that was on a much more senior level than i should have been able to i should have been um than i should have been It was incredibly rewarding. But apart from that, that was probably one of the most key projects. But other than that, I mean, I love business cards. Um, and they're probably one of my favorite things to design. Still, it's kind of a weird one. But um, for me, your imagination is the only limit you face. And despite how they've kind of dropped off a bit in terms of use, now everyone just says, oh, what's your Instagram handle or something like that. I still think they're incredibly valuable tools um, when, used in the right, when used in the right way and um, implemented correctly. I think, and if you're in the right setting, a business card can actually get you work very quickly if uh-huh. it's interesting. People can get a vibe for your work through that card. Um, and then also, like advice, anyone for, advice for anyone listening: if you're going to do print, triple, quadruple check everything. Like check your text expanded, check your bleeds, check everything because a print one can be expensive. And for instance, my um, my girlfriend is a art worker uh-huh. and. Uh, well creative artwork and she does like window design and stuff like interior design but she deals with like budgets where she'll be sending stuff out to print which costs like you know fifty thousand pounds and just stuff like that and if it's if it's incorrect you're looking at a huge amount of money that's just going down in the in the trash basically so if you are going if you are like a junior who's listening you are someone who's going into that field really get into the habit of actually checking checking twice checking three times um, the reason I struggled with that is because I'm ADHD. I don't have very good patience, and <laughs> that's kind of maybe why I progressed into these kind of like motion and like digital agencies because yeah. um, it's not to say I messed up, but it just I just find it very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but Aaron Draplin actually has a really good checklist for making print ready artwork. So if you Google, I think Aaron Draplin uh, print ready checklist, um, you should be able to find it online, or it's it's in one it's in um, his latest book that he did. Uh, pretty, I think it's, it's got pretty much everything. I believe it's called, but um, yeah, he's got a really good checklist on how to actually print ready artwork. Very cool. Love it. Love hearing that about print and you know how people are still using it. Um, then the next few questions I have for you take you down part of your career where you likely made some mistakes, learned some lessons, yeah. and I want to pull those bad boys out of you. Um, so, what's been the most challenging time in your design career so far? Why was it challenging, and how did you get through it? So pretty easy one for me because so i was made redundant as a junior and Mm. i had to start back as an intern so i am after i lost my job i found it difficult to acquire a new one the industry was pretty lax in jobs at the time Um, and obviously at that point i still didn't have a lot of experience so i only had about a year's worth of experience and i was living out in a place called hertfordshire which is um, a county just outside london so it wasn't very connected at that point in my life either Mm -hmm. um and the lowest I, I ever got was I was coming up from my girlfriend's one night and I'd managed to trigger two speed cameras, one on the way there, one on the way back. Oh, no. um, I, I didn't think I'd actually been speeding and actually I didn't get a ticket at, um, 
for those. So it must have been like, you know, glitching cameras. But anyway, I, I came home and I told my parents um, as I was still living at home at that point, And uh, we got into an argument. Um, I went upstairs and literally started crying, trying to take off my trainer um, because I felt so overwhelmed, so out of my comfort zone that I didn't know how to deal with it. And thankfully, my mum never came into the room. Uh, she would have found me crying while holding my shoe, which would have looked like the weirdest breakup in history. Oh, no. um, but at the time, I couldn't find a job. I was still living at home. Uh -huh. I was running out of money, and I wasn't, but I wasn't willing to compromise. And I knew I wanted to be a designer, and I made the decision at that point that I would do whatever it took. So with the help of one of my best friends, Dan, um, he got me an interview for an internship at the agency he was working at. Uh -huh. and I had to put aside my ego at that point and start being proactive, and I had to put aside these feelings I had of failure and realize that it wasn't a step backwards. It was just a step that took me closer to where I wanted to go, uh -huh. and that was the difference, but it was an incredibly hard thing to, you know, to go through an internship, to then get a job as a junior, to then kind of think, oh, well, that's me in the industry now. That's me kind of made. Uh -huh. I'm just going to progress. And then having to go back to being an intern on minimum wage for about six months and then work my way back up. Um, it was a really tough time. And I went and I mean, even though that that um, story kind of doesn't show the timings, I was probably unemployed for about three months at that point. And I had savings, but those savings were rapidly depleting. For sure. And I think the stress and I felt like I was being a burden to my parents by still living at home, uh, even though they're very supportive. Um and it just kind of, I guess it just kind of all gets got on top of me. And luckily, though, like I, I think once I made that commitment to myself to just I was going to do whatever it took to get back into the industry, uh -huh. that's when I sort of really pushed forward and started proactively working towards that. But yeah, that was definitely like one of the hardest things I've dealt with in my career because I was also still at such a young age and didn't really know how to handle the situation very well. Yep. Yep, definitely. You know, you took the you took the punches there and you know dealt with them as as best you could with the tools that you had at the time yeah and i think that's that's just there's kind of a lesson to be learned in that which is we kind of i think i'm actually going to be doing a sort of a, a bit of a talk on this next um next week but i feel that we we fear the idea of being made unemployed because to be employed is to be secure financially and maybe mentally. And by losing a job, you're failing to make yourself secure. And that's why it feels so scary. And it's also stepping into the unknown. But I think we have, if you're someone who go, is going through that or is worried about that, then owning that situation and not thinking about, oh, it, like not, not so much not feeling sorry for yourself, but just being like, okay, this is how it is. I need to just be proactive and I need to get straight into the headspace of doing things mm -hmm. and I need to be... So if I get made redundant, update your portfolio straight away. Get onto recruitment agencies. Feel like you're actually doing something to control that situation because yes. the thing that was hardest for me is that the lack of feeling in control in that moment. So the moment I started, to, I made a decision to get back into the industry. I started being very proactive towards doing that and therefore I felt more in control and less afraid because I felt like I was actually working towards something. Mm -hmm. so I think that's, yeah, that's something that I kind of, I, I learned from doing it. hundred percent. And that's almost the only way to learn is by going through it and by, you know, being put in that situation. So Ben, 
I want to now dive a little bit deeper and I want you to take mm-hmm. us to a specific design or a project that you were a part of that did not go well or bring the desired result. What was that like? How did that feel? Take us to that story. So I think I've been, I've been fairly lucky that any of the larger scale projects I've worked on, although you have the usual kind of like, you know, client pushback or whatever, it hasn't, I've never had an actual design disaster happen, but in terms of smaller projects, um, I was doing some work for a friend who I've worked with previously and I've always, it's always been super easy to manage. It's gone really smoothly and everything has worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, they came to me with a new project, just to like, it was just a logo design branding project um, for this new venture they had. Uh, but this time they had a really specific idea in mind for what they wanted. Um, however, they weren't really able to communicate it to me. And it ended up in a really bad place where I guess they didn't actually know what they wanted, but they know what they didn't want. And it just ended up with me doing iteration after iteration until I finally, out of frustration and exhaustion, just gave up and suggested that they find someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really just tiring and I it kind of was my first warning sign against working with friends because you always have this thing in the industry I like, oh, don't work with friends and family because it's just like an absolute nightmare and um, I guess that over familiarity can be a huge hindrance when it comes to progressing a project and voicing your concern um, mm. or solutions as an authority because I think that that unfamiliarity you sometimes have with a client means that you can position yourself as like a thought leader, a voice of authority. There's that kind of mutual respect in terms of you're hiring me to do a service, and you you know, despite the fact we might have some like um, disagreements, you understand that I am a professional and that's what I do. Um, and I think when you work with friends, you it kind of breaches that gap, and you don't see each other as necessarily, um, you know, clients and designer it's mm-hmm. a lot more like oh i don't really care if i'm annoying you because or like i don't care if i'm being difficult because like i'm overly overly familiar with who you are so i have been very lucky that i don't any big big projects have this kind of happened but the sm- i've had this happen loads of smaller projects and it has given me warning signs about working with friends in in certain like you know to a certain extent mm-hmm. But but that's basically it. It, it was just this day. It, it went on for a few. It was about, it went on for about a month, and I remember being very like sort of bitching with my girlfriend a lot, going like, "Oh god, she's just like you know." After like the twentieth round of like, "Oh no, I don't like this. No, I don't like that." And it's just like I was getting so um, drained and stressed about it that it actually just ended up with me walking away from the project. And that is something people should also not be afraid to do. Just if you feel you need to walk away, just uh-huh. walk away because. Um, a relationship where you actually, so a client relationship where you you actually walk away from willingly is usually more salvageable than if you just completely like try and push through it and just make it worse and worse and worse. Yes. Because um, there's that kind of, the sort of ability to walk away is that kind of mutual respect of you admitting that you're maybe in over your head and saying to the client, I think you're going to be better off finding someone else. Mm-hmm. Um but it's not like I, I think you have to like get to that point. You can't just like say that early on. Totally. No, I hear you there. Um, ben, I'm going to turn this bus around for you, and I yeah. want you now to tell us about a project that you've been a part of that you were the most proud of. One that just makes your heart sing. Yeah. So it's interesting. I've um, like I said, I I left my last job. Um, uh, well, I quit it on the spot and actually have progressed more towards, I guess, strategy um, within my role. And I've actually working with a company I mentioned earlier called Glug Events. Mm-hmm. And we they're not a, they're not a design agency. They're not a design studio. Um, but we put on we 
developed this project called Protest by Design. And um, it was for the UK SEN Fridays for Future marches, um, uh, obviously the environmental climate strikes. Uh-huh. And um, it the project took a form of an open source um, uh, protest poster um, database which anyone around the world could contribute to and anyone around the world could download from. There was no hierarchy. It wasn't about big names. It was about people who felt that they had something to say, being able to say it and empowering them and also giving the opportunity to people who maybe aren't creatives to be able to take something that looks nice and show support or take it to a protest or become involved. Um, I guess you'd almost form it, almost say it could be, it wasn't necessarily an advertisement campaign, but I guess a user generated content mm-hmm. kind of campaign and like project. But the reason I loved it was because it became a huge collaborative um, project where there was multiple design agencies came on board. We worked with a number of companies. Um, it gained international press from like people like Forbes and fast company and it's nice that, and you know, and Al Jazeera and loads of people started talking about it. The, hashtag itself which is protest by design um was done from a position you know a market marketing uh, market positioning kind of um attitude which was um everyone's doing this everyone's doing uh, exhibitions with like top designers and illustrators in the world getting them to develop posters but no one's actually doing anything which the normal per a normal person can just get involved in mm-hmm. and we noticed that the ha- this hashtag wasn't the pro- protest by design hashtag wasn't being used so we kind of populated that and now it's become a hashtag which people are using um, alongside the campaign. So that it's still ongoing, but it's like the database will be there until we can't host it anymore. That's cool. But people are now people are now using this hashtag just with environmental posts. And for me, because the design industry is an incredibly privatized commercial industry, like you would spend a lot of time as a designer working for brands like Coke or I don't know, like BMW making people who are already quite rich sell products to people who maybe don't have a lot of money mm-hmm. working on these sort of projects where it is just for a good cause and it's more of a passion project is actually really important i think for you to be able to flex your creative muscles in a way which does good mm-hmm. and ironically i spent six years in agencies trying to get the amount of press that we got for this like one campaign and i we finally did it in an in something that isn't a design agency um, we just had an idea and we started to initialize it and run it and push it out there mm-hmm. and it gained traction. So despite the fact I'd worked for clients like Nike and I've worked for clients like Vice and people like that, um, this one little passion project we developed in a studio that isn't a design agency was probably one of the best things I've worked on. That's so cool. And it's such a common theme that I've heard from guests is that the you know the project that they're sometimes the most proud of wasn't the giant thing where it just made their business and it made a ton of money and they were, you know, super excited to be tied to a huge name. It's been that one that had impact and the one that, you know, probably didn't pay well or didn't pay at all, but it had well, the biggest yeah. impact. And that's such a cool thing to hear. Well, I think it's, it's authenticity. So yes. if the, pro- the thing is when you work on something that's like a passion project, maybe hasn't, hasn't got a lot of money in it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, if it, it, it feels more authentic because you're more passionate about it. And when you're more passionate about something, it resonates with people. Um, it, it, you're not trying to sell it. You're trying to build it. Yes. And that's the difference. If you work for a client, you're often trying to sell the work. You're trying to sell the project. 
if you're working on something which is often self-initiated, you're just trying to build the project because you care about it. And that often is actually a lot more obvious to a demographic of people. And then they engage with it more. So I think there's definitely something about building projects which alongside commercial work actually is an authentic version of what you care about, what you're interested in, mm-hmm. who you are. Because then you, the worst case scenario is you don't get anything from it, but you're able to use it as a case study that you can ultimately speak very passionately about. Mm-hmm. And in that comes confidence. Because if you're talking to someone passionately about something, you often speak from a voice of authority. That then builds confidence in a client, which makes them trust you more, which then often can lead to more work. Very good. Well said. Uh, ben, you've reached the part of the show for the Ask It Forward question. It's where I have a question for you from my last guest. And you get the opportunity to ask a question of my next guest. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but you can ask them anything. So my previous guest was Sammy Christensen from Best Mm -hmm. Studio in good old Vancouver, BC here. And she wanted to ask you, time Mm. and money not an issue. If you could start any passion project, what would that be? Um, So can it be one that I've just started? (laughs) Dude, if, if, if you've been able to just start your passion project, then why not? So um, it's interesting, actually, because so if, uh, we, me and a couple of friends have just started this um, project called Weekly Design, which is actually the website weekly.design. Okay. And the, the point of that project and that website is to deliver industry standard design briefs weekly um, for to help people become better designers. It mm-hmm. came out of... We were looking at the landscape of these sort of sites and we re- we referred to it as like dribble culture, which is that you have these sites which are kind of very shallow and they force people to basically end up designing the exact same things with the same aesthetics and it becomes a very aesthetic-led mm-hmm. um, output. So you have a lot of brief sites which are very like, you know, design a luggage ticket in Illustrator, etc. But design's about solving problems. It's not about making pretty pictures. Mm-hmm. So... We saw that and we were like, no, these briefs aren't making people think about strategy or like marketing or like multiple assets or how actually projects in the industry sit. Mm -hmm. So what we've done is basically go away and start formulating briefs where we put about 40% more effort in, but they actually force you to think more from a, a commercial standpoint rather than just going, oh, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a homepage for a sunglasses company. And I'm going to go and dribble and just look at all the other sites people are making and then copy what they're doing. Um, so we've started that and that's been up and running for a, a little bit, but not like a very long time. Mm-hmm. And the aim for this is to actually um, turn it into an educational platform where we're currently working on building out a resources and evergreen section where it's going to have each brief will have content, educational content attached to it, which will link out to the site. We're going to look at um, gamifying the whole experience. So maybe you can do things where, um, if, like, you know, you the more briefs you tackle, you unlock bigger clients or you unlock other briefs which are at higher caliber. Uh-huh. If you complete a brief, you maybe get money put into, like, a, a fake bank account, which then allows you to um, access better briefs, so stuff like that. Uh-huh. So education is a huge thing for me. Like, not even, like, university, college education, just the ability to educate yourself but with that there is an ethical obligation to make sure the people you're educating are educated to a good standard yes and i feel the industry a lot of platforms on the web right now are slipping away from that and they're so focused on just making something cool that they're forgetting that 
you should be helping people learn how to become better designers, not just how to make things look nice. And that's where you kind of get this Fiverr culture, which is like, oh, I'm going to charge like $20 for a logo. Um, and I think we're trying to really, we're basically trying to push back against that sort of culture and help, but at the very least, help young creatives or creatives in the industry to practice, but practice at a much deeper level than just thinking about how it could look. Like, mm -hmm. how could it interact with an audience? How could it be positioned in a marketplace, like, etc. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's that's something I'm currently working on with um, four, three other friends. And um, we're going to be releasing the next version in February next year or end of February next year. That's cool. But, it's yeah, it's really fun. I love, I think everyone should have a side project at any one time. Like, and that's what I would, if I could leave my job and just have loads of money, that's what I'd be focusing all my attention on right now. Very cool. I love that one. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Um, yeah, definitely go check it out. It's, it's pretty fun. Weekly dot design, right? <laughs> yeah, just weekly dot design. Um, that's the website. Um, ben, what is your ask it forward question for my next guest? So I've been made redundant twice and I've quit one job due to burnout. Mm -hmm. What would your advice be to someone who is going through a similar situation or prospect of or has a prospect of losing their role and ultimately their financial security i love it perfect i'm going to ask that question of the next guest ben that's the end of the quickie podcast thank you so much for your time man thank you for having me on i've had an amazing experience it's been great all right everybody that is the end of today's episode thank you so much for listening in i really appreciate your time hope you have an awesome monday planned and uh, i'll be back tomorrow Thanks again. See ya.